Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Hemp Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe we've been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. Oh, you're telling me. Producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. The Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals links to the source material from all of our adapted film discussions. Purchasing through our links support the show at no extra cost to you. In Season 12, the focus was big franchises and series. We covered both Paddington films, adapted from the beloved children's book character created by Michael Bond. Oh, I love those films so much. Hugh Grant is perfect. For our Pitch Perfect series, the first film was adapted from Mickey Rapkin's nonfiction book about collegiate acapella competitions. It's like a short story of my life, literally. I lived college acapella. Sing it, brother. I lived college acapella. <laughs> I didn't mean literally. <laughs> You know who you're talking to, right? The Twilight Saga dominated the season with five films adapted from Stephanie Meyer's vampire romance novels, Twilight, New Moon, Eclipse, and the two Breaking Dawn parts. Dominated with awkward romance and nonsense logic is more like it. <laughs> that too. Another Thin Man brought us back to Dashiell Hammett's only Thin Man sequel based on other Hammett material, The Farewell Murder, that wasn't just based on the characters from the first film. We talked about Train Spotting and its sequel, T2 Train Spotting, adapted from Irvine Welsh's novels. Ugh, I hate the sequel's name. I do too. And the entire Lord of the Rings trilogy, adapted from J.R.R. Tolkien's epic fantasy series. Love these. Extended editions all the way, baby. Plus, all the Mission Impossible films based on the 1960s TV series. And we've still got at least one more to go. Members got to hear us chat about The Hustler and The Color of Money, adapted from Walter Tevis's books. Get all of these books and more at our Originals page, thenextreel.com slash originals. Start your next read from the movies we've covered at thenextreel.com slash originals.
I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Gangs of Wasipur Part 1 is over. This is Wasipur. Here, even a pigeon flies with one wing and uses the other to guard his innocence. Gangs of Wasapur, Andy. I had never heard of this pair of films, part one and two, this epic magnum opus of gangsters. I had never even heard of it until you said we need to do it. And I thought, oh, okay, I really want to talk about this. And now I feel like I can say with confidence, I'm glad I did. Oh, good. Oh, good. I'm glad to hear that. What did you think? I really enjoyed it. In the realm of films that you'd call epic, this is one that certainly fits that uh, that term. It is a big story. It's encompassing a lot of people, a lot of family members. And over a long period of time, this particular half of this, this saga covers essentially like from the 40s into the 90s with a prologue that takes place in the aughts. And so there's there's a lot of stuff. There, and you, you're it moves fast. Like we're kind of racing through this film with so many different uh, people that we're meeting and relationships that we need to stay keeping our heads as far as how they're connected. And I thought the filmmakers, the storytellers do a really good job of creating this space, giving us this world, giving us a sense of the importance of coal and uh, everything in kind of Indian society. And uh, just the whole thing was gripping. It was a very gripping two plus hour film and i i had a great time watching it can't wait to see part two can you just straighten out for me just before we get into the main show this we watch the part one and two are both exactly two hours and 38 minutes uh what was the original release was this really originally released as one film it was not originally released as one film it was made as one film that was uh you know five hours and whatever that would be uh five hours and 19 minutes long and uh, all of the distributors in india said nope we're not going to distribute anything that's that's that long sorry yeah it played at con it actually played it was i think the first hindi film to play at con's uh director's fortnight and it was the full um five hours and 19 minute long version of the film it also played at sundance in that length and was received very well but they couldn't get distribution. So the filmmakers, and this, this, it's interesting to put this into this particular season when it's a season of franchises and series, when it really is kind of one film that was forced to be split into two because no one would distribute it. Right. And so uh, we are talking specifically about just part one, but when they did release it, part two was released just a few months afterward, because essentially they were both done. They just, you know, were able to kind of space them out just enough to keep audiences excited and keep the story in their heads. That's crazy. Well, I, I've watched three hours of it total. I did start the second one, and it was very hard to turn it off. So I'm excited about it. Well, when this film was released here in the States, it was not rated. This was one of those foreign films that did not get a rating. Would you rate it, just real quick? What would you rate it? 
probably are. I think that's a fair rating for it. <laughs> okay. I'd rate it NC awesome. <laughs> All right, Andy, here we are. Gangs of Wasipur. Why is it so satisfying to say it like that? I, right, I know. They never quite do, but you kind of want no. them to. Mm. So before we start talking about this, I just thought it was important to just note that this is based on real events, that there was this, um, what they called a coal, coal mafia and the area was Donbad, which is uh, Donbad and Wasipur. You kind of get this little map explanation of the area at the beginning of the film. There's Donbad and Wasipur. They're two like towns next to each other. They're all in this particular area um, that goes through a few different um, sets of uh, governmental leadership over the course of the story based on whether the British are ruling or not. And we get this sense of how this coal mafia comes to be. What's interesting is that in India, there were a lot of these, what they called mafia rajas, which are um, regimes that were ruling particular areas or types of economies. There was a, a jungle raj that was ruling the jungles. There was a gunda raj, which uh, ruled the gundas. There was a timber mafia. There was a contractor mafia. There were various land mafias and a coal mafia. And this film kind of gives you this setup of how these coal mines came to be and how the British took over all this farmland because they discovered coal, started mining it all. And then when they left, they turned it over to particular people and families who kind of became the heads of the state, the, the local politicians, because they had all of this land and they they um, owned these uh, coal mines. And then it, it kind of becomes this um, this mafia as this leadership was using coal in different ways for its dealings. And you had people who worked there who would steal the coal and sell it on a black market and like we see a number of these things over the course of the film where they were like emptying the coal trucks and, and you know, filling it with sand and all these different things. Um, but it was this real thing. And, and the people in here are loosely based on some of the real people involved in this. So just wanted to get that out first, that this is actually loosely based on some real stuff that was going on in India at the time. And something that, uh, as I was reading about, um, this whole, like, there was this quote that I read online, said, Donbad as a city is a metaphor for all that went wrong with modern India. <laughs> so, as far as just, like, this level Yeesh. of corruption, yeah, that, that yeah. kind of was overtaking the country. I'm excited to see now that once we transition into the into the aughts, uh, if if anything even remotely gets close to getting better, because as we near the end of this movie, it does not look like it's getting better Um, early in the movie. It's it is, uh, you know, we're we're introduced to these families and the initial sort of warring between these two guys. It starts with two guys and it ends up being this epic sort of gang battle, but it starts with two guys in a village and their buddies who are robbing, one guy's robbing a train uh, for uh, grain and another guy uh, doesn't, sure doesn't like to see that the grain prices are getting uh, impacted by these train robberies. And um, thus, epic gang battles are born. We should clarify that 
they're both robbing the trains, but one of them starts posing as the other. That's right. <laughs> to, You're right. To to steal That's it, an and then point. he's and then he's <laughs> selling the grain, and so this other person is very upset that. Uh, not really our protagonist, but kind of the father of our of the main guy that we're following over the course of the film is stealing the grain and then selling it and kind of ruining the market. And then what I found so interesting is that they don't go after each other. They talk to the village elder who like kind of tries to work to straighten all of it out. And that's kind of how things were handled at this particular point in time. It just didn't work. Yeah. And so, because it turns out it's hard for guys like this to let go of stuff yes (laughs) so they they amplify let's let's talk a little bit about the setup of these characters because i know we both had to go back and watch the beginning multiple like a couple of times just to get a sense of who all these people are how well do you feel like you you tracked the the our our central family protagonists and the setup yeah, it, it it was a film that throws a lot of people at you, and it's taking place over decades. And so I did need to pause a few times, uh, kind of catch up on Wikipedia and go, oh, okay, that's what was happening there. And then once I finished it, I actually did go back and rewatch like the first hour just to kind of reconnect the dots and say, oh, okay, this person is doing this particular thing. Um, you know, and this is the, these are the kids. These are, there's, it's kind of these three parties that we have largely dealing with kind of a lot of the stuff that's happening. And so it, it was a little difficult tracking, um, initially, but it's one of those films that just, like I said, it's epic. And so having a, a second viewing of some of the elements really did help me quite a bit. Did you at, at any point think to yourself, I, I think this is a Bollywood movie, but I don't see enough dance numbers. <laughs> I was wondering about that. And, I, you know, it's not like every Bollywood film has to be defined by a big <laughs> musical moment. Although it did it did pique my curiosity. And I was like wondering, I wonder if there will be one at some point, And I wonder how that would feel coming in <laughs> at whatever point it did in this particular story, because it might feel out of place. But you know what's interesting about this? They snuck it in. They sneak in music in yes. in a way that actually didn't feel out of sorts at all. They have this, they have this, like, he's essentially a wedding singer, right? He sings at events, and he always wears, like, this pink shirt. And uh, he sings all, uh, all parts, all ranges, and he sings in mourning, and he sings in enthusiasm. And he's just kind of snuck in in places that, that you don't, sort of even realize that he's he's actually doing a musical number before he's doing a musical number. Uh, I think the Bollywoodishness is that they leave the musical number on just a little bit longer than would have been in, in say, a Scorsese film. But there's definitely music in this. And it's I, I actually didn't find that out of sorts at all. Uh, and, and I actually feel confident if they were to in- include a dance number, I actually have have some confidence that they'd be able to pull it off in a way that that feels Earned. Director uh, Anurag Kashyap, uh, as, as you mentioned, I mean, I think is is th- this is a, an exceptionally competently directed film. Hey, absolutely. And, and definitely there's a lot of elements that you can see in what he's doing pulled from Scorsese and Coppola and De Palma. And I mean, even going into films like spaghetti westerns that feel really big like leone's films uh, this is a director who has a broad expanse uh, i mean even you could say tarantino to a certain extent like he's he's pulling a lot of this very energetic filmmaking style 
into this story and and depicting a lot of violence and and some pretty awful stuff in a way that just constantly feels gripping that you really connect and enjoy watching these characters as as awful as they can be and and you're right like there was that scene i can't remember what the um i know i i researched it it's it's some particular multi-day um festival or something or a day of mourning or something where it's muharram. during mu- mu- muharram right when everybody is out mourning that is the moment when they come through the Qureshi area and they're all doing that singing and dancing they've got the loudspeaker playing and everything and it was kind of fun to see them like doing stuff like that it just it did fit these characters in a way that made it work and made them fun to watch and it, you know that is a, a particularly gruesome set piece using this this national sort of day of mourning and have it uh, sort of punctuated by throw the bomb throw the bomb like as they as they initiate this massive bombing attack and it just continues to amp up from from there and these sort of guerrilla tactics so i yeah i i feel like they did that really well one of the other things that i think they did well in, in terms of of keeping everybody straight even though you know we had to do some study to actually get, make sense of it Every time they introduce a new character, they give them a, a, a title card and they also give a nice title card for major date changes, major, major sort of era changes. I found that really helped me to focus on who they wanted me to focus on at any given time. It was structurally a sound outline, right? Like I felt like I was reading bullet points of story as we got through this thing. And that helped a ton. And I thought it was a really neat sort of conceit. Oh, absolutely. It was it was a great tool. And I mean, we've seen other filmmakers do that sort of thing, but it's just a way to really pinpoint, oh, okay, this is going to be a prominent player or like, oh, this is that kid that we've been watching now all grown up. Like, you know, we're when we see Sardar all grown up and we're like, okay, now we're following him. It's just a way to really kind of clarify a lot of these elements and keep things clear, especially because what you know you have these groups all overlapping i mean largely it's now i'm blanking on his name what's the other guy's name that uh is leading the town who's leading the the in the beginning or the labor minister yeah the one who becomes the and who hates his son like his the one yeah. who's always <laughs> making fun <laughs> right. of uh, it's sing uh, it's ja- um jaggi van ram um ramadier it's uh, ramadier yeah ramadier yeah. sing um, right. So he's he's kind of the corrupt politician leading things. And he hates his son because his son isn't very good at it. And, right. His <laughs> son is terrible. And then you have Sardar Khan, who's the, the family who's kind of leading the a lot of the unrest, I guess we'll just say. Right. He's and then Skywalker. the Qureshis. He's right. And then you have the Qureshis, which are the, the butchers, and they kind of are between the two and everyone kind of at different times. It feels very much like you know, the red, red, uh, harvest sort of story where at various points in time, different people are working with each other in order to come at that other one, you know? Yes. And for sure. it plays really well in the way that these groups are, are all trying to get ahead and trying to be the one who is going to, um, have the most control in this area. Yeah, for sure. So you, you dropped Sardar since this is his story. Do you want to talk a little bit about your your thoughts on his character it's i mean his character is a dark character and he's an interesting one to to watch and and you you get a sense that he kind of became who he did because of his father who we see at the beginning so sardar's father shahid 
is posing as uh, Sultana Qureshi, who is the father of the butcher. Because he's doing such a good job, he ends up getting employed by a young Ramadir. And then Ramadir overhears uh, Shahid saying that he's going to uh, soon overpower Ramadir and take over. And that's when Ramadir has Shahid killed. Sardar is taken off by uh, Nasir and raised and vows, when he finds all this out, he vows that one day he will kill Ramadir. He's going to avenge his father. And he becomes this criminal leader. Now, um, I don't know if I've seen anything else that Manaj Bajpayee, uh, who plays Sardar, has been in. But in this particular film, he felt dangerous. Like, he played it in a way that I found very effective and interesting. And, uh, you know, he kind of, he shaved his head because he he said, I will, I'm going to shave my head and, until I have uh, avenged my father. And so he's got a shaved head and this mustache that just makes him look so menacing throughout the film. Um, and, you know, I think they're also depicting the relationships of the time and the way that the Indian society uh, treated relationships where he has his first wife and kind of has a rough relationship with her. And so he starts, he has a second wife and his first wife, uh, there's this, there's this just kind of a lot of negative energy with the way that he treats the women in his life that's kind of difficult to take. But I still found him to be a really interesting character as I watched him pursue a way to kind of overcome the the terrible uh, way that Ramadir was ruling things and was pushing society to be more and more corrupt. So it's interesting. And this is one of those levels of, uh, of, of who's worse sorts of conversations we had like in our pre-show chat for our members about like, who do you really root for here? I think that's the that's the real question. I think Manoj uh, Bajpayee, I never heard what he was up to either. And it is fascinating to see that he is, you know, according to Wikipedia, quote, regarded as one of the finest actors in Hindi cinema, recipient of three National Film Awards, six Filmfare Awards, and two Asia Pacific Screen Awards, uh, awarded the India's fourth highest civilian honor, the Padma Shri, for his contributions in art. Uh, the guy plays, and I think he is great. He is a complex character, character and a lot of darkness like the but but what's so interesting about it is the first time we we really see him he's having an affair on his wife right that is <laughs> right. and and is like being beaten up by his wife with a uh, like a broom and chased out of his own house that is not the profile of a horrific gangster right that's how we're sort of introduced to this to this character of any substance as he takes over like we've seen him as a young uh, character we've seen him as a, uh, a you know kind of growing up under his father but once he's an adult and vows to shave his head and do all that he we join his story as he's being beaten up as a as a flanderer and i think that's really interesting because then we're sort of building back with him as he's building his reputation as this like terrible gangster, uh, along with his sort of destructive um, tendencies toward his marital relationships, uh, he's just not—he's—he's he's not good at that stuff. And um, I don't know, like to, specifically to your point about our conversation earlier, I don't know if that makes him—if that's our in for him, right? What is it about this guy that makes me? 
like sort of root for him. One, it's a vengeance story, right? I'm interested in him avenging his father's death. That's the big one. That's the anchor piece. But two, the fact that he's not good in his relationships doesn't make him a good person, but it makes him fallible. And I am interested in a story of somebody who's who is at least at in some way trying to trying to make good on past mistakes. I don't think he ever really is successful at doing that. <laughs> but you do see him try. At one point, one of his strategies is, you know what, why doesn't everybody just move in together? Don't worry. You can have separate kitchens, right? That's right, his right, big right. play to try and unify his family. And that, I I have some sympathy for, or, or some empathy for what he is going through. Uh, and I, I that, I think, might be another part of the inn. Yeah, it's interesting to see the way that that plays um, and the way that, you know, there's there's strength in uh, Risha Chada plays his first wife, um, uh, Nagma. So good. And she's great. And she does not really take his, um, you know, his crap. I mean, she obviously is hurt. And I like that we get to see how devastated she is when he decides to not come home and to marry this other woman. And in this particular society, there's nothing she can do. She just has to deal with it. But it's not the end of their relationship. And that was an interesting element because when things aren't going well with his second wife, he comes home to uh, to Nagma and she, you know, isn't very excited about it, but still ends up welcoming him home. And it's just it's interesting to see the way that there is strength in this uh, in his wife for a character that in a society largely was dismissive of the role of women, except as somebody who just keeps the house, whichever of those happens to be, you know, one of your many or whatever, you know, because I think at one point he's talking about how there's power in having as many wives as possible or something, you know, and it's, I was, I was a little concerned that uh, she was going to be kind of left by the wayside once he got uh, married, got married to his, or hooked up with his second wife. But then you see there's more to it. And I appreciated that. She is, Nagma is the mother of three. She's the mother of Faisal, who becomes a central character for us later, uh, along with Danish and Perpendicular. Right. <laughs> now, they're, Durga, they're, yeah. the other, the, the second wife, is uh, the, the stepmother of uh, those kids, Faisal, Faisal and Perpendicular uh, and, and Danish, Danish. Yeah. but the mother of Definite. Right. <laughs> Definite, Danish, and perpendicular. Yeah. I don't know what to make of those names, but I love them a lot. It was uh, it was very funny to see. I don't know if that's one of those things where they're just picking random words that yeah. uh, they think are interesting, but it did make me chuckle when I was like, wait a minute, is that someone's name? I, I It made me, I, I sat there thinking, what would I have named my son if I were along this line? I thought there is no other name than Tangent. I wonder how many people are named Tangent. Uh, I think it's. I think it's actually. I think it's fantastic. It just made me made me chuckle. The the, uh, the cross cultural language tricks. Yeah, right, so, right. Uh, so I'm, I'm glad you bring the kids up because uh, you know, aside from the um, the second wife that he does uh, marry, Durga. Uh, and and Durga kind of comes into it after he escapes prison and he's hiding out and and she's kind of a I, I couldn't quite figure out exactly what her backstory was. It's not like she was an untouchable or something like that, but she was kind of a she was a housekeeper for this person who had, took them in in hiding from when they escaped. 
and they had kind of taken her in as their housekeeper because something had happened in her life and she was kind of seen as somebody who wasn't going to be really be able to have much of a life because like her I, I wasn't exactly sure her backstory. But anyway, Sardar sees her, falls for her, and decides, you know what, she's I'm okay. I don't have any issues with any of that. And that becomes the second person in his life. And uh like you said, the mother of definite. And as important as she is, we don't meet her until well into the movie. Like we get through the 40s, 50s, 60s, almost all the 70s. We meet her when he's as you after his uh escape from jail. Um in this home in 1979 in movie time. And so like she's she's a little bit late in the movie, but becomes a pretty central uh, sort of character in their little trio. Yeah. Um, and is great. Yeah, I, she is. Rima Sen is fantastic. I really do like her, too. Yeah. And it's interesting, though, because it comes at a point where his first wife, Nagma, and his eldest son have been really working to help him escape prison. Like, to the point where mom is helping train, I believe it's Faisal, right? Or is it Danish? Oh, you know, no, it was Danish because Faisal, this was the part where Faisal, they made this point of him uh, getting more and more into drugs and yes, his skin right, right. getting darker. Right, right, right. And Danish is helping um, sneak things to build bombs into the prison. Yes. So they're a very important part of him breaking out of prison uh, and i understand he's in hiding and so there's a reason that he's not returning to them but at the same time it's interesting that his character ends up being so dismissive of his first wife at this point because he's just so smitten by durga yeah which is i, I think it's really really interesting that also allows us to pivot again to the relationship between the the boys danish and faisal in particular because their relationship really uh is central to the last half of the movie after this escape. Danish is sort of rising to competence and Faisal is falling from it and falling more and more into this sort of drug uh, existence. Uh, and that becomes pivotal, you might say, yeah. or perpendicular to uh, <laughs> his father's story in the final act. The importance of this story and how we're seeing these boys getting raised by Sardar, who's there sometimes, he's not there sometimes, is when you're in this lifestyle and your family is part of this criminal underworld, it is really, really difficult to get out. Because as frustrating as it is for, for Danish and Faisal to see that their dad is virtually ignoring them all the time, to a point where there's a point in the film where you actually see Ramadir trying to swing them, trying to like buy them with money to come work for him instead of their father. And Ramadir is, of course, the one who killed their grandfather. And so the the thing with the boys is they really have a hard time getting out of this life. And, and you know, uh, Danish ends up becoming part of the team and uh, to the point where he actually gets injured. And that creates this huge thing uh, later in the film that uh, where Sardar is really, uh, you know, throwing warnings out about if anything happens to my family, I'm going to kill you all. But it also is the thing that brings him and his wife together again, you know? And then Faisal is another one as he gets older who ends up becoming part of this whole thing and uh, becomes a, a fairly important part of the end of this particular story as far as uh, things happening uh, with his father, which is it's interesting to see how all of that plays out. Because the entire third act asks the question of 
of value of relationships, friends versus business. And I think that's a really important lesson for for Faisal, who I, I feel like at the end of this movie, it, it poses the question, what would happen if Michael Corleone had been gunned down and Fredo had to pick up the business? Right. Fredo <laughs> was a, an idiot. Faisal is portrayed as like an idiot drug addict. What happens when he is he is not only responsible, but left holding the bag? That's the big question. So Faisal and Faisalu are really good friends, apparently. And he gets drugs from Faisalu and they hang out at his house and, and he, you know, just gets high and falls asleep all the time. And it Faisalu also works for Sultan. Right. The the butcher family, the the butcher. And so Faisal is just talking to his buddy, Faslu and says, oh, yeah, dad's going out without security. Faslu is it feels like there is no question for Faslu. He's he calls his uh, uh, sultan and calls up the Qureshis and says, hey, no bodyguards on this on uh, Sardar uh, have at it. Uh, and, and that leads to the dramatic assassination of Sardar. Just leading up to that, though, we should also mention that when Sardar, like when he goes out on his own, he also goes to Durga's house, his second wife, uh, and gives her her money. Like I, he he continues like stopping by and helping pay his families and stuff. And you see him um, talk to his young son there and she doesn't come out. She She's remaining hidden behind some. Um, some drapes, and so he doesn't know that she's uh, aware that he came by, but she also calls them to let them know that, hey, he's left my house. And so there's this there's this nature of crossing these lines with some of these people to the point where, like, you know, suddenly, you know, this second wife, and, and I don't know if it was because of the reconnection because of, of Danish's um, injury where Sardar really kind of reconnected with Nagma, but Durga uh, isn't going to let that stand, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, which I think is another reason, like that entire sequence, and I, I'm on the fence with whether or not Durga knew, or he knew that Durga was standing behind the curtain you know, when he's talking to his son. I, I, yeah, I the way that it's shot, it never fully clearly spells it out, but I didn't have a sense that he did because, and it's just really because of the way that uh, that our director uh, framed everything like Kashyap really framed it where she was hidden. He was talking to the kid. I don't think that he ever played it. Like I have a sense that you're back there, but I'm not acknowledging you because you're not coming out, but maybe that's just the way I read it. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think we, I could read it either way. I mean, part of it to your point is the way it's not only the way it's framed, but the way it's lit. Like when we're, when we're in her perspective, we can see through the, the uh, light through the curtain. Um, but when it cuts back to his perspective later in that sequence, it's very dark where she's standing. And so obviously the curtains, you can't see through the curtains. And so I just feel like the way he sort of, you know, nods and looks around, sometimes he's talking to his son, but his eyes are over the shoulder as if he's really talking to her behind the curtain. And so to me, reading it that way, it feels like this is his effort. Like he might know that there's a triangulation against him or suspect that there's a triangulation against him. But, you know, it's just, it, this is his settling of old debts. He's trying to make good. He's trying to make change. And he knows he's going to go and meet some sort of a, some sort of a, a fate that is not 
necessarily a happy one. And I, I like that. I like the darkness in that. I like the awareness in that. I like the, I like imagining that he is aware that things could go very wrong and that he's, he sh- absolutely should know that he's taking a risk by leaving his house at all without bodyguards. Yeah, but it is interesting, right? Because it is this point in the film where Danish has fallen for Shama, who is the cousin of Sultan, right? And they're trying to end bloodshed. And they're trying to stop it. And so he is trying to come together with the Qureshi family, the butchers uh, and Sultan, and trying to create this this peace so that they can they can marry and and they can stop all of the bloodshed and everything and sultan hates this he's very upset about the fact that that this is happening and uh, you kind of get this sense oh, and faisal is also romancing somebody else who's related to sultan so both kids of um sartar are falling for um, women who are related to Sultan. So there's there's this sense of this developing connection. And so, yeah, I, I'm curious. I know you've watched a little bit of part two, but it's interesting to see that this film ends with this moment where uh, Sultan really kind of sends out hitmen to kill Sardar. And that's the end of Sardar, as far as we know it, and potentially the end of this delicate a fragile peace that had been formed because of these relationships, you know, I it, it's an interesting point for the film to end because it really does leave things on quite the cliffhanger. The uh, did you have any question as to whether or not he lived at the end of this movie? Uh, well, let's just say I was awfully surprised to see him get out of the car. Um, yeah. But then the fact that he had a bullet kind of lodged in his skull that he plucks yeah. out, I'm like, well, I don't think he's going to live. But <laughs> I know, I you know, this wow, that was he sure quite... made it through a lot and is still moving. <laughs> I, know, I know. Now, structurally, part of this because I know that the that the architecture of this film is over many generations and many different. And we've already seen generational hands changing over the course of the last two and a half hours, and and so I knew that at some point he was going to have to die in order to unleash the next part of the movie and the generational conflict. Well, plus we had that prologue. Right. We did. We we had that prologue, but the prologue is is later and the prologue will will get more of the prologue in the second movie. And so there was a part of me that thought this is going to be an exceptional power move. If they end on this cliffhanger and they're able to get that bullet out of his brain and make him a viable character in the <laughs> next movie, I, I will say yeah, that he's dead. <laughs> he's, he's very dead. <laughs> I, I kind of figured he was because he pulls the bullet out and then the, he kind of, I mean, it's it's a beautiful way to end the film with that kind yes. of like, I don't know what that little, uh, little bicycle um, thing that they ride around things on, you know, like, um, yeah, cycle ferry. Is that what you call them? I was just thinking of like the thing that the guy you know rides around and has the popsicle cart in the back yeah, or whatever, right. you know, it's like one <laughs> right. of those sorts of things, but yeah, he could just kind of collapses on it yeah. and just some beautiful shots that really kind of told me, okay, this is the end of his part of the story. And now we're left with these two sons that we're following, uh, Danish and Faisal, and what's going to happen with them. And we see it like this is why I went back and rewatched the beginning because it it is Faisal and it's JP who sends the Qureshis after Faisal. And that's what we're watching at the beginning of the film, which takes place in 2004. And we see um, the Qureshis come in and they they shoot up. 
Faisal's house. They assume he's dead. They tell JP, who is the you know our government official. This is now uh, Ramadir's son who's leading things. And he then has the police turn on the Qureshis and open fire to to kill them. And that's how our film opens. And so there still is this bloodshed, but now it is between the sons. And so I guess, you know, as I was when I went back and rewatched that opening, I'm like, okay, well, that that for me was the definitive answer that uh, Sardar does not make it after the end of this particular film. Yeah, which was which I I have to say that that prologue, this is just me, I think. not being able to track the number of people that are in this movie that we need to pay attention to easily on the first watch. But it was that opening I had to go back and watch again in particular to see who who the hell are we talking about right now? Like, why are these guys important? After the movie, it makes it much easier to kind of wrap your head around things and how they open. Yes. Yeah. But especially bold that it that that prologue doesn't actually play out in the first film. Like that's a prologue that sort of an it, it it's sort of an epi epilogue that it takes place so much later and we never see any of the resolution of that. Well, all we see is that street assassination. Yeah, I would I would be interested to sit down and watch both of these back to back, just like the whole thing as one big um almost five and a half hour film just to really get that full experience of this whole epic story just unfolding before me. I mean, I'll say I watched, as I said, about the first hour again, and I just found it as engrossing as I did um, the first time I watched it. So it's it's a gripping film. And, you know, I haven't seen anything else by Anurag Kashyap, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm curious to see more about what he's done because I... Um, no, I take it back. I actually recently watched... No smoking, of, and I forgot about this. But this was a film that he had directed based on Stephen King's short story um, "Quitters Inc.," which is the reason that I oh watched it because I was, um, you know, you know me and my obsession with watching Stephen King adaptations yeah. as I reread all of his books. But it's it's very, 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 we'll just say, loosely based on "Quitters Inc." But the, <laughs> but it is there. There is this element, and he takes it in some really surprising directions as it goes uh, kind of uh, into some some strange places that I wasn't expecting at all. So that was an interesting element of that film that he did. So, so yeah, so now I've seen two films of his, and I'm certainly curious to see more because I find his stories, uh, the way that he directs them to be um, enthralling. Fascinating. I, I'm actually curious to watch that. I, the, Quitters Inc. Is, is one of my favorites of his shorts. Yeah, it's well, it's a very uh, different take on it, but I found it to be uh, and I guess it did. It was not received well, but in the scope of what he was trying to do with the Stephen King story, I found it to be this really surreal way to take the story that honestly kind of fits in with some of the the ways that um, Stephen King kind of plays with ideas in his stories. So it's different, but uh, definitely worth checking out. A, a quick aside, how does it compare to James Woods in uh, Cat's Eye? Well, I mean, that, that is a very straight-up adaptation of the story, and I thought they did a great job of it there. Yeah. Um, it's It's just totally different. Like, at the start of the film, he, like, wakes up in... Uh, so he's like in in some crazy like Russian gulag or something, 
And there's this bathtub up on a hill outside of the prison, and he has to escape this prison and run up and get to the bathtub. And then suddenly he wakes up and he's actually in bed. It was crazy. Like, it is a really strange, strange take on the story, but just fantastical in a way that I wasn't expecting that made it much more interesting than I ever would have guessed it would have been. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I am, I, like you say, about just in, in ter- terms of uh, Anurag Kashyap, I am, I am provoked to see some more of, of his work because he's fantastic and he's only two months older than me. So it means, I mean, I, you know, <laughs> come on. Straight up. It's, like, it's practically a brother. Uh, yeah, <laughs> right, right. And, and you know, I don't know. I, I, it makes me want to look into his. Um, he did a Netflix series called Sacred Games. Uh, it was India's first Netflix original uh, Sacred Games. And uh, it makes me curious to see how he handles this kind of stuff, this series stuff, because um, especially if they're throwing Indian Netflix money at it, uh, it was probably been immediately canceled after a season but uh i am curious <laughs> uh yeah i do see that it had two seasons so you got 16 oh, episodes so of that to watch two seasons i've got all right yeah. yeah anything else no other than you know i i feel like the construction everything about this film uh the cinematography by uh rajiv ravi is um just a very effective gritty colorful uh i i think that it feels like a like I, you know, I brought up Scorsese and Coppola and De Palma and all these other filmmakers, but at the same time, it feels very much of India. Like there are a lot of elements that just feel like it's part of this world. And so, I, I, I had a great time, and I'm very much looking more looking forward to seeing part two. Me, me, me too. All right. Well, we'll be right back. But first, our credits. The Next Reel is a production of True Story FM, engineering by Andy Nelson, music by Shara Bina, Oriel Novella, and Eli Catlin. Andy usually finds all the stats for the awards and numbers at d-numbers.com, boxofficemojo.com, imdb.com, and wikipedia.org. Find the show at truestory.fm, and if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, please consider doing that for our show. How to do an award season, Andy? This one has got to be better than The Thin Man. <laughs> uh, well, to your point, there are a lot more awards uh, and award groups out there uh, in 2012 than there were through any of the 30s, 40s, 30s or 40s. Um, this film did really well for itself. 20 wins with 60 other nominations. So it was received very, very well at the awards of the International Indian Film Academy. Uh, Sham Kaushal won Best Action for, uh, it's a technical award for kind of the action choreography. Best Dialogues, it won for Best Dialogues. And nominated Best Director, uh, Manoj Bajpayee was nominated for Best Actor in a Leading Role. Uh, Huma Qureshi was nominated for Best Actress in a Leading Role. Uh, Nawazuddin Siddiqui uh, was nominated for Best Actor in a Supporting Role. That's the grown-up Faisal. Uh, Reem Sen was nominated for Best Actress in a Supporting Role. Um, uh, Tigmanshu Dulia was nominated for Best Performance by an Actor in a Negative Role. Interesting category there. Uh, it was nominated for Best Story, Best Picture, Best Musical Director. Um, at the Filmfare Awards, it won Best Actress uh, for Richa Chada, Best Film. 
and it won Best Film by the Critics, Best Actress by the Critics, Best Dialogue, Best Action. I just, I mean, so many awards. Uh, just, it really ended up doing very, very well across the board. It's a big one. I, I love how they, uh, mar- apparently the marketing of this film, everybody took up, took to the streets and danced to the soundtrack being played by Jeeps driving around the streets of Mumbai, all the <laughs> actors. I think that's very clever. Uh, I don't know that it would work everywhere, but it certainly plays <laughs> in Mumbai. Indeed, indeed. Uh, how about at the box office? Did, did it make any money? Well, this is going to be an interesting one to discuss since essentially Kashyap, as we said, made one giant film that was then split into two. Because of that, the budget's often discussed as one number, uh, 2.3 million after converting it from rupiah. I did find that in a few places they seemed to, I don't know if it's arbitrary, but they seemed to split it to 1.1 million for this film and one point, uh, uh, I guess 1.2 million for the other film. And uh, in today's dollars, you know, the 1.1 does end up being about 1.2 million uh, for this first part. Both parts of the movie, as I said, premiered at Khan in May 2012 as one big film. And then this one opened in India on June 22nd, 2012, and it did mediocre business. I couldn't find any information about any international releases, though I did see some domestic critics reviewing it, so I'm assuming it played limited, at least in New York and L.A., the movie's total international gross was $3.5 million or $3.9 million in today's dollars, and it does land this first part with an adjusted profit per finished minute of $16,800. Interestingly, it wasn't viewed as a success, though it did turn a profit. I think overall, once you put the two together, they were they kind of viewed the whole thing as a success, but this first one, they didn't think it was quite as successful as the second one. I can't wait for you to watch the second one. I can't wait to finish the second one. I, it's it opens with a with quite a bang. So um, fantastic, awesome, yeah, great film. Yeah, I, I'm really excited that we did add this to the list, and I'm very much looking forward to seeing part two. All right, well, we'll be right back for our ratings. But first, here's the trailer for next week's movie, Gangs of Wasipur, part two. <laughs> I'm not going to 
अच्छे को बोलना अब उन्हें हालो बोलना Letterbox Dandy. Ah, yes. Now, how are you going to handle this? Are you going to treat this as one movie? I I had a thought that maybe I rate this one, but for me, I'm kind of thinking this is, I see it as kind of one movie. So both movies have to have different, or have to have the same rating. You know, I suppose that's true. Um, It is one of those films that I suppose, I mean, they released it in two parts. It's listed, interestingly, on IMDb as just one film, but on Letterboxd as two films. And so I suppose it makes me wonder, like, has it ever been released outside of a few theatrical locations as a single film? And I I haven't looked into that, but I am curious. I don't know. I guess I'm going to rate this as just this film since that's all I've seen. And then once I've evaluated part two, I may come back and adjust my first rating, depending as kind of this one big film. But uh, this one, I really liked it. I found it to be gripping and I did not feel at uh, two plus hours, no, two and a half plus hours. I was at two hours and 38 minutes, 240. Two hours, 38 minutes. Yeah, Both I, movies are the same. Yeah. I did not feel it lagged ever. And uh, I had a great time. So I'm going to say for this one, I'm going to start with four stars and a heart. I'm right there. I think that it is uh, <laughs> it's one of those those movies that I feel like is going to age well for me. Um, and and to your point, how easy it was to watch the beginning again and to start the second movie immediately, even after spending two hours and 38 minutes with the movie like it was absolutely effortless to just press play and continue watching this movie, uh, watching the the story of, uh, of Faisal. So, yeah, I'm at four stars and a heart. And I think, uh, you know, depending on how well this next movie wraps up, I maybe it uh, maybe it inflates a little bit. I'm excited. Yeah, absolutely. Well, don't forget, visit the slash letterboxed and you can get your patron or pro membership. It does work for renewals as well. So what did you think of Gangs of Wasipur Part 1? We would love to hear your thoughts. Uh, hop into the Show Talk channel over in our Discord community where we will be talking this week about the movie. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Letterboxd giveth, Andrew. As Letterboxd always doeth. Where'd you where'd you start? Go up or down? I went low, but then I ended up working up to the middle. So I'm right in the middle, two and a half. Okay. Do you want to fall to two and a half? Because mine's a five. Or do you want to climb the ladder? Um, let's let's climb the ladder and end on a high note. Okay. Go for it. I got a two and a half by November. And I think that there are probably a lot of people who are going to come out of it feeling this way. 
Just another gangster epic where men are horrible for three hours straight. <laughs> Hold my beer, says part two. Yeah. Uh, I've got <laughs> a uh, five-star review from Shriyas Misra, who says, My face when you kill off your main character, in all caps, screaming, and then emoji of shock face. P.S. This is the best movie ever made, and this includes part two because they are one five-hour movie. F you if you disagree. <laughs> wow. Okay. <laughs> you go, Shriyas Misra. Thank you, and thank you, Letterboxd. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM, and it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content, and we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today. <laughs>